0: And we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was not beyond resolutions himself. I don't know that he waited around until the first of the year to start them or whatever that would have been for him, but at the very least, we see him there praying for the Philippians that their every resolve for good and every good work might be done unto the Lord. So I hope that's the case for you, whether or not you're a resolution person or you may have started your resolution. You may, you may not need the first to start your, your resolutions. That's the way I am. I know Lonnie said in the past that he's a, he's a, he's a January 1st guy. You know, uh, but regardless of where you land on that, I pray the same as Paul that the Lord may fulfill your every resolve for good, that it may be unto the Lord. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. My name is Trey. I'm, I'm the associate pastor. Um, I'm not the one who normally teaches. That's that's Lonnie. He uh, he has been walking through the book of Exodus over the course of the last year, and right before Christmas time, we just completed Exodus chapter 15 and the Song of Moses. So now, Lord willing, as he comes back to preach next week, we'll be now on the far side of the Red Sea and and the rest of the book there. So the Exodus proper has completed, and now we get the wandering. Uh, However, uh, as I have had the opportunity to preach now for a year and a half or so, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's been a minute since we have been in Philippians. Um, August was the last time, I believe, that, um, that I preached and we were there. But it is always a reminder, and it's a, it's a great reminder, to come back to this book. And, and just to be reminded that, that regardless of who is preaching, whether we're on our normal march through Exodus or whether we go back to our intermittent study in Philippians, that, that regardless, we're just going to the next verse, right? We're just picking up with the next verse. Uh, There was a period in John Calvin's ministry when he was banished from Geneva. He had been the pastor of Geneva. And in 1538, the authorities there in Geneva thought that um, they didn't want uh, Calvin there anymore. Uh, So they banished him for three years. But during those three years, things got so bad, they asked him to come back. So in 1541, they rescinded the ban. Calvin came back, and he picked up on the very next verse that he left off with three years later earlier in 1538. I love that little anecdote because it goes to show what else would we be doing as we gather here other than going to the next verse? I have no wisdom to share with you outside of the word of God. Lonnie has no wisdom to share with you outside of the word. So where else would we go other than to the next verse? And for us, the next verse is Philippians 3, verse 1. And we'll go through verse 11 Uh, This is the last section, or the second section of discourse in the book of Philippians. Let me just give you a brief recap. What that means, by the way, is that we're now on the second half of the book. Um, In chapter 1, Paul largely spent his time offering uh, ministerial updates, uh, letting the Philippians know how his time in prison in Rome is going, and offering what he, he believes to be his future expectations Not sure whether he's going to be released, maybe he will, maybe he'll die in prison, but regardless, he wants to update the Philippians on the status of the gospel, the progress of the gospel. And and the status is all is well, the gospel is advancing, there is progress still, even though Paul is in prison, people are coming to know the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul begins the first major section of of discourse, of teaching in the book. And and, uh, that, that, that section runs through chapter 2, verse 18. And as we walked through that section with three or four or five sermons, there was really one word that rose to the top there, and that was the word citizenship. Paul tells them in chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ or live worthily as citizens of the gospel. And that that command hung over that first full section there. What does it look like to be a citizen in this kingdom governed by Christ and his gospel? Well, there was a a transitional section after that first major uh, uh, piece of discourse there. In that transitional section we saw last time in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, as Paul discusses two faithful brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's writing to the Philippians to let them know about his own plans, hoping to get there to Philippi. But in the meantime, he hopes to send Timothy, but not yet. So in the meantime, he's going to send back Epaphroditus. And there's much to learn there from those two faithful brothers. But that brings us to today's passage, beginning the second half of the book in the second and last major section of discourse, verses 1 through 11. It's another well-known passage with several memorable verses. I, I think this probably could have been two sermons, uh, but given the, the sort of the intermittent nature of Philippians, I think uh, it was best uh, the rate at which we're going through this to go ahead and do verses 1 through 11 at once. But I, I, I wouldn't give maybe any superlative to this passage as, as some would receive. Like we gave a superlative to chapter 2, uh, the, the Christ hymn, talking about how it's one of the greatest or the greatest Christological discussions in the whole Bible. Th- 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 this chapter, these verses might not be receiving uh, of any superlative. But at the very least, they are memorable this is one of those passages that should make us soar with affection and passion and longing for Christ. So I want to I read this comment from one, one commentator, Gordon Fee. He says this of these verses This is one of the truly surpassing moments in the Pauline corpus. It would be a tragedy if its splendor were lost in analysis. Finally, Therefore, one should go back and read it again and again until what one learns in the analysis is absorbed in praise and worship over the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And there, Gordon Fee hits on the central theme of this passage. When when you ring the bell of this text, the note that resounds is knowing Christ, it's the title of our sermon, Knowing Christ, captures what Paul is getting after in these verses. And three things are going to guide our time. Paul mentions true circumcision, he speaks of true value, and he speaks of true righteousness. So if you would go ahead and stand and let's read Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You can be seated. And as you do, let's pray to the Lord to help us. Help us to hear what he has to say this morning. God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for bringing us back and snapping us out of the post-Christmas end of year fog and bringing us back into the reality of you and your son and who it is that we worship and who it is that has purchased our lives and our souls and to whom it is that we owe everything. I pray now that as we Consider these 11 verses over the next few minutes that you would speak, God, I I do not have the words to communicate these realities. No preacher has the words to communicate spiritual things, but we need your spirit to help us. So pray now that we would not be here and we would not, not be here just just writing this off as a speech, some kind of talk. But God, when your word is preached, the miracle happens where the Spirit speaks into our hearts things that we cannot discern on our own. God, I pray for you to do that now for us. If there are those here who do not know you, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would show them the worthlessness of their own works and show them the true value of the righteousness of Christ. If there are those here this morning, God, who are hurting or tired or weary or weak, pray that you would comfort them with your word, remind them of the truths of your gospel. God, for our children in the back, I pray that you would do the same work with the word as they study Daniel this morning. Do the same work of the word in their hearts as you do in ours with Philippians. We pray that you would save our children now. Save them young. May they have what some call boring testimonies. Because their parents raised them in the church and they became Christians at a young age. We pray that even this hour might be to that end for them. We pray all this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, halfway through the book, Paul begins this section by saying, finally, which might be a curious way to start when he goes on for two more chapters, but we don't need to read too much into this. That, that word has thrown many people off thinking, well, this must mean that this is a second letter that Paul wrote or somebody else wrote and added this as a later, later part of the letter. And we, we don't need to go there. When Paul says, finally, he simply is transitioning from one uh, part of the discourse to another, he might as well say, moreover, or additionally. And as he does, he reminds the Philippians of a common refrain that that he repeats all throughout the letter. That's the refrain of joy. Once again, rejoice in the Lord. It's a great theme in this letter. It's unclear whether this, this command is connected to his excuse me, unclear whether this command is connected to his previous instructions or related to the subsequent instruction. But regardless, there's always a need for the reminder to rejoice in the Lord. Whether it's rejoicing in light of their sufferings that he has mentioned, whether it's rejoicing in light of his own delay in coming, or whether it's rejoicing in light of their diligence among false teaching, joy is a choice That the Philippians need to make. They need to decide to rejoice in the Lord, to resolve, to to set their minds on rejoicing in the Lord. Paul's going to say in chapter 4, verse 12, that he has learned the secret of being content through various sufferings. Many of these things in the Christian life are learned. They're not simply downloaded into us. So to rejoice is a thing that we must choose to do. It's a command to find joy in the Lord. And it's a safeguard for the Philippians as they do that. It's a safeguard because it reminds them who it is that bought them. It's a reminder of their perspective. That Christ, the one who purchased them, is their rock and redeemer and the stronghold of their lives. And we constantly need this reminder, no? Sure, we don't know exactly why and where rejoice in the Lord fits, but, but regardless, we constantly need this reminder to rejoice in the Lord. How many of us so quickly and so often revert back to complaining and grumbling that Paul mentioned in chapter 2? Do nothing from those things, he said. But rejoicing in the Lord, finding joy in Christ as an antidote to that grumbling and that complaining because remember, we remember that he is the one in whom we place our trust. And it's, it's on the heels of this general reminder to rejoice in the Lord that Paul zeroes in on his target for the rest of these verses. <coughs> so let's go ahead and consider our first point there. True circumcision, verses 2 and 3. Let me reread those. Look out for the dogs, says Paul. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul issues a warning here to the Philippians to watch out or to look out or to beware for a particular group of opponents. We've already come across two other opponents in the letter. There was those opponents in chapter 1 verse 15 in Rome. These are opponents of Paul who are preaching a sound gospel but doing so with the motives of rivalry. Then there were those opponents in Philippi. He mentions in chapter 1 verse 28 those who are, who are pushing against the religion of the Philippian Christians who are claiming heaven were their citizens, not Rome Were their citizens. But this here refers to now a third group of opponents. This threefold warning refers to one group, otherwise known as the Judaizers. These are those individuals who would be making circumcision a requirement for participation in the people of God, even post Christ. These folks would have agreed with the Pharisee Christians that, that Doug read about in Acts chapter 15. What was happening there in Acts 15 is that after Paul's first missionary journey and the gospel has, has clearly come to the Gentiles, there were those in Jerusalem who were, who were concerned that these unclean Gentiles might be receiving the Lord. They might be coming to know God. So they said, this is Acts 15 five, the party of the Pharisees rose up. The believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, "It is necessary to circumcise them in an order to keep the law of Moses." Yeah, good, good job bringing the gospel to them, Paul. It's great that the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and all, but they still need to observe this so important right of circumcision in order to be legitimate. And this is the same group which Paul speaks against in Galatians. There, almost the whole of the letter to the churches in Galatia is, is, is addressed over this issue. It's aimed at this. It was an active problem there in Galatia because Paul says that they have already bewitched some of the Galatian Christians. They have already bait and switched to them and said, now that you believed in the gospel, you also must go and do this in order for that to count. Now, we need to put ourselves in the first century to understand why this would have been an issue at all. You see, when, when, when a Jewish individual would have, would have come to know the Messiah in the first century, they would not have considered themselves to have joined another religion. There really was no distinction, or for that matter, there really was no term Christianity at all. So there was definitely no distinction between Judaism and Christianity. It would be decades or centuries before Jews who became to know Jesus as the Messiah would consider themselves to be something other than still Jewish. That means a Jew who became to believe in the Messiah would not have shed his Jewish identity in the first century. It's important Because the most significant part of Jewish identity was circumcision. It was the central marker for belonging to the people of God, required for participation in the covenant people. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, where God institutes this covenant of circumcision with Abraham. This is what God tells Abraham in Genesis 17:14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision was required. It was the sign and the seal for entrance into the covenant people of God. So if circumcision was central to Jewish identity, and a first century Jewish Christian would not have shed his Jewish identity. You can see why the role of circumcision and what role it would now play was such a big deal in the early church. Paul takes up this issue more in more detail in Romans chapter 4. And there he argues that circumcision, even as the sign and seal of the covenant, did not save Abraham. He holds up Abraham as the, as, the, as the highest example of faith. And he says, even for Abraham, circumcision did not save him because Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. i going to go back and read Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Paul's getting at. How was faith counted to Abraham? How was righteousness counted to him? Via faith or via circumcision? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what Paul is teaching in more detail there in Romans 4 is that circumcision was never in and of itself the key to entrance in the covenant people of God. It was a sign done out of faith. Abraham was counted righteous by his faith long before God ever told him to be circumcised all along physical the physical circumcision that marked the covenant people of God pointed to a spiritual circumcision of the heart done by faith and paul is not just making this up he's not retroactively putting something on the old the old covenant that now makes sense in light of christ this was all through the old testament paul's not making this up deuteronomy 10:16 circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart it's God talking. Jeremiah four four: Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. Ezekiel forty four verse seven: uh, The house of the Lord had been they had been admit the house of Israel had been admitting foreigners into the covenant people who were uncircumcised in heart and flesh. Paul's not making this up. It was never about a physical act only. The physical act reflected a spiritual reality in the heart. Even in the Old Testament, yes, they were justified by faith. But nevertheless, some Jews in the first century are still teaching that the physical act of circumcision is required And it is at these Jews, this teaching, that Paul takes aim. Important here, he is not taking aim at Judaism as a whole. He would never do such a thing. Paul has great regard for what he calls in Romans 15, his kinsman according to the flesh. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, For what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Answer to his own question, much in every way. For to the Jews have been entrusted the oracles of God. Paul is not attacking his kinsmen as a whole. He is not attacking the institution at large. He is attacking those Judaizers who would add to the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone. It's unclear if this false teaching is already active in Philippi. By the time he wrote this letter, we know that it was active in the region of Galatia. Or maybe Paul is just proactively heading off the danger that he knows is at foot. But he offers a serious warning here that is intentionally polemical. Paul is picking a fight. He is not saying, okay, look, guys, this is a a sticky situation. There's some gray area here. It's understandable that they would think this. I mean, we know how important circumcision was after all. So let's just find some common ground. We don't want to be divisive. No. Paul sees this teaching as antithetical to the gospel and these teachers as enemies of Christ himself. He is picking a fight. And he intends for this polemic to stick in the minds of his readers. We don't see this in English, but in the Greek, it's intentionally alliterative. There's an acoustical effect with this threefold repetition of this warning that would have stuck in the minds of his readers. He calls them dogs and evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. He's ironically turning their own words against themselves. Dogs were horribly unclean to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Dogs were scavengers. They feasted on dead things and on garbage in the street. The Old Testament mentions dogs licking up the blood of dead men and eating their flesh. They were inconceivably unclean for a Jewish person. So they would have referred to the Gentiles, those unclean people who don't have our covenant. They're the dogs. Those Gentiles are the dogs. So those who would have thought of themselves, these Judaizers, would have thought of themselves as protecting ritual purity and upholding covenant cleanliness. Paul says, no, you're the dogs. You are the unclean ones. And he calls them evildoers, those who thought they were doing and upholding those all-important works of the law. Paul says, no, 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 you're not doing the works of the law, you're doing the works of evil. And they're mutilators of the flesh. They were not keeping the covenant. All they were doing amounted to mutilating perfectly good flesh. They have added to the gospel, and Paul has serious words for those who would do such a thing. In Acts 15, I believe it was Peter who spoke up and said, Would you add a yoke on the Gentile Christians which our fathers and we ourselves could not bear? They have added an additional yoke to the gospel of grace. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, this is what Paul has to say of those who would add to the gospel. Those who would alter the gospel. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. Accursed be these folks. But the attack, uh, the the focus here, is not on the attack of these individuals. The focus is on the warning. So Paul identifies them and warns the Philippians of their teaching. Paul, Paul is just being a watchful shepherd. This is what shepherds do. This is one of the functions of a pastor, one of the functions of an elder. Uh, Paul writes in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so as to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul is just being watchful. He's being intentional. Everything we do as a church, must be intentional. We, we as elders are not just, we're not just cooking up stuff that makes sense to us and that we like, but our service and our small groups and our Bible studies and the way we conduct everything in this church, may it be for the service of upholding sound doctrine and identifying doctrine that does not hold up, that contradicts it. Paul is being a faithful shepherd with this warning. He's warning against a gospel plus. Now, it's unlikely that we're going to hear this specific false gospel in our day. I've never heard anybody going around telling me that I need to be circumcised to be a true Christian. But we are not immune to the gospel plus. Fill in the blank, all kinds of things. On The other side, we're also not immune to the gospel minus. It may manifest as a gospel that diminishes your sin that made Christ's sacrifice necessary in the first place. Or it may be a gospel that diminishes the effects of knowing Christ. The effects of of repentance and sanctification A gospel that doesn't sanctify you is not a gospel. A gospel that doesn't result in repentance, in turning from dead works to works by faith, is not a gospel. That's the gospel minus. We're also not immune to an off center gospel. Here, Paul addresses the gospel plus. We know there's also the gospel minus, but there also might be an off-center gospel where Christ crucified is not the thing in the center. The message of Christ is nice, and it's great, and it's true, but it's a stepping stone to other more important issues. Jesus is a useful tool to get at what we think is really important. But all of life does not bow down to him as the blazing center of our heart. This is an off-center gospel, which is also no gospel at all. You know, it's helpful to read this at the beginning of the year, because whether it's a gospel plus or a gospel minus or an off-center gospel, we need to hear the same warning as the calendar rolls over. Watch out. Look out, beware. They might not be dogs, they might not be mutilating the flesh, but watch out for the gospel plus or the gospel minus or the gospel off-center. Are you clear on the gospel this year? Are you going to be entertaining any voices that are adding to or subtracting or refocusing the gospel off its center of Christ crucified and risen? We need to constantly be asking ourselves this question because if we don't, we are likely to drift. Paul does not only identify and warn of the counterfeit, he also points out the real thing. Look at verse 3 with me. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. While the Judaizers are teaching that circumcision is something you must do for entrance into the people of God, Paul says, no, no, circumcision isn't something you do. Circumcision is something you are. We are the circumcision. It's something that you become. Paul is is trying to point out true circumcision against the counterfeit. And as he offered a threefold rebuke of the Judaizers in their twisting of the gospel, he now offers in verse 3 a threefold instruction of what constitutes true circumcision. True circumcision means we worship by the Spirit. Life in the new covenant, marked by spiritual circumcision of the heart, is a life not lived under the letter of the law, but lived in the Spirit. He writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. We worship now from a new heart, not checking off boxes. How, By the way, this is not on my notes. How is your Bible reading plan going to not become a box checking enterprise this year? Because you're going to worship Jesus from the heart. That's why. The only way for your, your whatever plan it is, or you may not do a plan, whatever it is, how is it not going to become a box checking routine? Because you'll do it from the Spirit. True circumcision also means we glory in Christ Jesus. And if we worship by the Spirit, of course we will glory in Christ. Because that's what the Spirit does. Jesus says, John, John 16... Verses 13 and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the spirit always, always always results in the glorification of the Son. And if you see anything that is so-called spirit or spiritual that does not glorify the Son or has nothing to do with the Son, it is not of the Spirit. It is not spiritual. The work of the Spirit always and only results in the glorification of the Son. Finally, true circumcision means we put no confidence in the flesh, we trust not in outward religious observance to save us. We trust not in our own works. We trust not in our own ability to present ourselves before God. This is a denial of the flesh. True circumcision is a denial of the flesh. So if we step back and look at verse 3, Paul is instructing here at large what it means to be a Christian. True circumcision, true belonging to God is about two things. Worship and denial. True circumcision is about two things, worship and denial. The worship of Christ alone by the Spirit, in the denial of my own works, the refusal to count my own righteousness as legitimate. These things are mutually exclusive. The worship of Christ demands a denial of my own righteousness. To put our confidence in Christ requires that we put no confidence in the flesh. True circumcision is to worship Christ alone by the Spirit and deny confidence in ourselves. So watch out for those who would alter that formula by adding or subtracting or refocusing. Well, from here, Paul zeroes in on this note of self-confidence as we move to our second point, true value. He's already denied confidence in the flesh as a means for coming to God. But in order to show more fully the foolishness of such self-confidence, he plays into the hand of the Judea. He said, okay, I'll play the game. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, sure, let's play. I have more. In the ancient world, let me read first. Let me read verses four through eight, so we know here what Paul is about to do as he he plays into the game of the Judaizers. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I'm going to stop there. In the ancient world, men would often battle for superiority by engaging in what was called an honors race, not a physical race, but a race to see who could stack up the most honor, who could prove themselves the most superior to others. And these would often be written on the tomb of dead men or dead soldiers to show their superiority over others based on their heritage or their accomplishments. So as Paul plays the game, he, he mimics this honors race with his opponents. But he lists his, his Jewish heritage and accomplishments. He, he stacks up his own catalog of Jewish honors as if to say to the Judaizers, If you think you have confidence in the flesh, I have even more. And he starts with those inherited honors to show that it, that he he even has superiority over those who became Jews later in life, those proselyte Jews, those who were who were already adults before they became Jewish. Paul says, "I I, I can even top that." These are not honors that I achieved. These are honors. Based on my heritage, circumcised on the eighth day from birth, a keeper of the most important sign and seal, on the precise day that God commanded, the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, an Israelite by birth, Paul's a purebred. He's not the children of converts. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin remained faithful with Judah one of the two tribes that did not break off with the northern kingdom, but stayed in the southern kingdom of Judah, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, best of the best, first team, all Israel. These are his inherited accomplishments. And then he moves his inherited honors. Then he moves to his accomplishments according to the law, a Pharisee. This would have been an honor to a Jewish person, not a blight as we think of it when we read the Gospels and we see their evil hearts. He was trained under the famed Gamaliel, a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, one who considered himself to be maintaining the purity of the covenant, working to to snuff out this ridiculousness of of the risen Christ, these people who think that he actually rose from the dead, I was, I was snuffing that out and maintaining the purity of our faith, of our religion, by persecuting those Christians. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Not sinless, but a perfect keeper of the law. The complex, multi-fenced law. Insofar as righteousness under the law could be attained, Paul attained it. His own catalog of Jewish honors shows him to be, as it were, a perfect Jew. Everything one could possibly need to prove themselves before God. If that were the way it works, Paul had it. And this catalog constitutes not only his accomplishments, but his very identity. This identity would have been of extreme value to someone like Paul. But he builds this tower high, higher than anyone else, of heritage and accomplishments only to knock it down in verse 7. But whatever I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. He has created a test of true value. What is of most value, the most impressive Jewish honors possible? Or Christ? He demolishes the tower to show the foolishness of such a game that the Judaizers are playing. And in this demolition, Paul shows two things. One, he shows the impotency of our own works of the flesh. His whole point in refuting the Judaizers is that you cannot do anything to come to God on your own. It is by grace through faith alone. Even the most impressive accomplishments and heritage are not enough. Now, I think as Christians, we know enough not to outright claim that there are other things we're trusting in. We know the gospel well enough not to say outright but have you searched your heart? Have you searched your life to see? What do, your, what do your patterns reflect? What do your desires reflect? The way you spend your time, your anxieties and your fears that plague you, what are they saying about what you really trust in? You might not say it with your lips that you trust in other things, but what is your life demonstrating? Have you searched your heart to know that you are not building your own tower. Maybe not of these same Jewish things like Paul did, but we do engage in tower building, make no mistake. And I have to say this to our children and our students, particularly as Paul talks about his heritage. He could have relied on his heritage if that were efficacious. One of our elders, Mark Grosso, loves to say that God has no grandchildren Because we must each choose for ourselves. We must each choose. We may not rely on mom and dad's faith. It will not work. It will not cut it. Each of us has chosen our own way. Each of us has committed iniquity. And the faith of your parents, children, and students will not suffice for you. It did not suffice for Paul, even though he had the richest of heritage. You must choose for yourselves to follow Christ and trust him. So the first thing was that Paul shows the impotency of the works of the flesh. The second thing is that he shows the foolishness of tower building at all comparing accomplishments and abilities and gifts, keeping up with those others down the street. Paul aims to to make foolish the entire enterprise of constructing a tower for ourselves. Yet we do engage in this. All of these points of earthly gain, Paul says, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. What was it, though, about Christ that causes all other things to be lost? What is it that makes Christ more valuable than everything else? Paul created a test, a test of value, and he said that Christ is more valuable, but why? Why is Christ more valuable? Answer, verse 8, as Paul moves to the thesis statement of his passage. Indeed, I count everything, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord what makes everything else loss the surpassing worth of knowing Christ To be exposed to Christ, truly, one cannot disregard as simply another encounter. To be exposed to Christ is to be radically and essentially and totally transformed, to be captivated, to be overcome by his glory and by his greatness, by both his tenderness and his ferocity, by both his grace and his holiness. This is an encounter from which you do not recover and stay the same true knowledge of Christ always leads to Christ weighing down the scale no matter what you put on the other side. Not only does he outweigh all other things, but Paul says all other things are rubbish in comparison. Other, other versions will use the word garbage or dung, but this word combines both, the vul, both, both vulgarity and worthlessness, and filthiness, all wrapped up together. In modern parlance, the word crap might be the most appropriate. Worthlessness and filthiness, and contains that hint of vulgarity that I'm not supposed to say from the pulpit. But that's the seriousness with which Paul is weighing these two things. Christ on one side, everything else, rubbish. And the surpassing worth of knowing Christ for Paul is not just intellectual. It's personal. He says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is actually the only time that Paul ever says, my Lord. I couldn't believe that. I had to look it up. And it's true did a search. All the occurrences, the only occurrences in all of Paul where he says, my Lord. This is personal for him. The list of Jewish honors and accomplishments was part of his life, part of his identity. But compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, they are as nothing. The Christian is most fundamentally not defined by his identity who he is, the, the intersection of all his various interests, the sum of his personality and his upbringing and his, his background. The Christian is one who most fundamentally is defined as one who values Christ above all else. That is it. Have you ever considered knowing Christ as this significant in the Christian life? We talk all the time about honoring Christ and glorifying Christ in living for Christ. But have you ever thought specifically of knowing Christ? We're not meant to just be the beneficiaries of what he offers. As if he is some distant guy, just just a distant benefactor, doling out righteousness to people, that we don't really know. We're meant to have a real relationship with a person. This is what Christianity is about. Jesus himself says in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. We are meant to know him, and when we do, it causes us to forsake everything else to follow him. This is the imagery we get in the Gospels. The disciples had to put down their nets and follow him. Man must put his hand to the plow and not look back. Man must leave his father to be buried by someone else and not look back. Jesus says in Luke 14, So therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Yes, it is a great cost, but knowing Christ means that he is a greater Savior. Compared to him, put every accomplishment, every honor, every part of your heritage Every security in life, every trapping, everything that sparkles on one side of the scale and put Christ on the other and he outweighs them all every time. How will your year reflect that you know Christ and value him like this? If you make your resolutions or whatnot, as you, as you think about the coming year, how will your plans reflect that you want to know him better? You know, we are inundated with options for entertainment In hobbies, in responsibilities, in sports, in things to which we can give ourselves. The options are limitless. But how will you make a conscious choice to know Christ more? That's what Paul was after, to know his Savior. To see him as all the more precious. How will you choose this year? How will your life reflect that you aim to know him? For those here that aren't Christians, I just want to encourage you that this really is the thing that you need to decide on. You know, whether or not you have seen, perhaps you've seen Christians behave badly, there's plenty of them. There's many in this church, by the way, so if that's what you're afraid of, I don't know what to tell you. This is what you need to decide on stumble over Christ if you're going to stumble stumble here he is the one you need to decide about regardless of what you have grown up with regardless of what you were taught decide get to know the Jesus of the gospels he's much more tender and much more fierce than you can imagine at the same time get to know him and then decide do I not want to know him and then go on your way to the path to hell, but stumble over Christ, not anyone or anything else. Paul wants to get, Paul wants to know Christ. His suffering, the loss of all things, counting them as rubbish is for that purpose, that he may gain Christ and be found in him. He says in order that in verse 8, but we shouldn't Take that to mean Paul's suggesting that we count everything as loss and then we receive Christ as a payment. No, that that in itself would be a work. But for Paul, the, the gain of knowing Christ comes first. He experiences him in such a way that everything else falls away as utter garbage in comparison. Paul was captivated and blinded on the road to Damascus, out of nowhere. Not expecting it, not asking for it. And immediately everything else fell away as garbage. Knowing Christ is antithetical to holding on to the vestiges of our accomplishments in our life, they are all as rubbish. He encountered the risen Lord and everything else paled in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing him. To to know him is to gain him and be found in him. So let us move on to our last point, true righteousness. He says this in verse 9, but really it's just a continuation of, of gaining Christ. In order that I may gain him and be found in him. You know, in our sin, we do what Adam did. In the garden. When God comes walking in the cool of the day, it says there in Genesis, and Adam is hiding because of his guilt and because of his shame. So in Adam we hide, but in Christ we are found. In Christ there is no reason to hide, there is no shame, there is no guilt, there is no sin from which we must be ashamed. We are found in Christ. Our only hope in life and death is in Him, not in our own accomplishments. And Paul tells us how we may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. This verse, verse 9, is really Romans 1 through 4 in a nutshell. The first three chapters of Romans is a reminder that we need another righteousness. We need an alien righteousness because ours is not sufficient. It is only sufficient to damn us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.20, For by law no human being will be justified in his sight because through the law comes knowledge of sin but we are found in him by the righteousness that comes by faith. The alien righteousness that we need is the very righteousness of God. Romans three twenty one and 22. But now the righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Knowing Christ is to be found in him, possessing his very righteousness, not our righteousness. Own. And when this is the case, He is our only hope, He is our only boast, He is our only trust, He is our only delight. This is the gospel which we most must be so clear on. I mentioned earlier about being clear on the gospel. Not a gospel plus, not a gospel minus, not a gospel off-center, but a true gospel. This is the one we must be so clear on. Our sin is vile to a holy God and we need the righteousness of another that we may know him. The only one who could provide such a righteousness was God himself, the second person of the Trinity who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And on that cross, he became sin, took our unrighteousness, and gave us his righteousness. Now, in grace, God gives us faith to trust him, and his righteousness becomes our own, and now he, Christ, is worth everything. That's the gospel that we need to shoot right down the middle on. And it's beautiful here as we go into verse 10 that Paul brings the discussion back to knowing Christ. He, we, we don't only relate to Christ legally as our legal justification, our forensic righteousness, being positionally in Christ. We don't only relate to him legally and positionally, we relate to him personally. Paul goes back. Verse 10, all of this that I may know him. And knowing him results in two things knowing the power of his resurrection and knowing the sharing of his sufferings. First, Paul wants to know him in the power of his resurrection. The power of God is most fully and greatly manifested at the resurrection. When we are found in Christ, we have the same power in us. What this means for you, Christian, is that there is no sin which you cannot overcome. You are never, ever stuck if you are found in Christ. There is no point at which you are hopeless, If you are found in Christ. There is no sin which you cannot overcome. There is no forgiveness which you cannot offer. With his power. We are not just poor miserable pilgrims. Slogging through this world. Until we get to the celestial city. His power brings joy. We march on with hope in the power of his resurrection. Knowing that brings hope. We can live in the present, as one commentator said, with a kind of holy abandon, forsaking all else, considering our accomplishments as rubbish because we know that we have all we need in him. We have no need of our own righteousness because we have his righteousness. We have all we need in him. The power of Christ's resurrection gives us this hope. So may we know him. May we know it. And it's a reminder to us that God has raised us from the dead. It keeps us humble. See, Christ, Christ's physical resurrection anticipates our physical resurrection But it also images the miracle of our spiritual resurrection. You and I being saved from sin is as much a miracle as a dead body living. Be not bored with the miracle of your resurrection. The second thing that Paul wants to know is to share in Christ's sufferings. This is the same word we've seen several times as fellowship or koinonia. Paul, Paul wants, uh, desires to know the mutual participation, the sharing, the fellowship in Christ's sufferings. Because we have the hope of his resurrection, we're enabled to share in these sufferings. In other words, to know Christ is to have a life shaped like Christ. And we learned in chapter 2 that Jesus' life was cruciform. It was cross-shaped. So for us to know Christ is to likewise have a cruciform life. Humble, obedient, and suffering. To know him is to participate in that. To become like him in this regard. To become like him in his death. The Philippians, Paul says, have already been granted the opportunity to suffer. They've been granted the opportunity to suffer for Christ. Paul is aiming at knowing Christ, means having the opportunity to share in his sufferings, both by perhaps physical suffering and by suffering the loss of all of our own accomplishments. By knowing Christ, we will gladly conform ourselves to be cross-shaped where we await the hope Of the resurrection. And it's on this note that Paul, well, Paul's not closing, he's still writing the letter. But it's on this note that Paul moves into verse 11, and on the note that we will close with. Verse 11, he says, well, let me back up to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by meaning this is sort of the end of his logic here, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul always has an eye set beyond this life when he will know Christ fully. The end of knowing Christ on earth is knowing him fully when we are united to him in the new heavens and the new earth with with perfected, resurrected bodies just like his own. And of course, knowing Christ here on earth ought to be our aim because that's where we're headed. We're headed to be united with him fully, to value him fully. And this ought to engender for us, as it does for Paul, much anticipation and much hope. This is what it's all about, to know the one who is the offspring of Genesis 3.15, to know the one who is the lamb of the Passover, to know the one who is the bronze serpent lifted up in the desert. We get to know that one fully and finally when we are resurrected and united with him perfected bodies just like his. Do you have, does, does that play a factor in your Christian life? Do you have that kind of hope? Have you ever been or to a funeral or, or been around those who are grieving the death of the loved one and, and this is just absent? Sad. Because when this isn't there, the only thing left in what you find yourselves talking about is, is the memories of good times and and um, a legacy that a person might leave and the good things they did and, and the good person they were. But it's all rubbish. It won't hold up. It's sad. It's lamentable. It should break our hearts to hear those kinds of funerals. There's a marked difference when a saint dies with the hope of attaining the resurrection from the dead because they have a righteousness, a true righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. To borrow from Paul earlier in the letter, to die is gain because we have the hope that resurrection is coming and that we will see the shining face of Christ in all its splendor. We will know him fully and truly, and we will have him as ours forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word, and I pray that you would give us all a desire to know you more fully. Give us a desire to encounter your preciousness, in your sweetness, in your tenderness, and your seriousness, in your holiness, and your grace. Help us to know what it's like to be comforted by the one who has borne all of our afflictions and sorrows. Help us to know what it's like to, to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence, because you yourself know. God, I pray that this, this would define the way we live. I pray that we would not waste our lives and waste our year and waste our time on all kinds of other pursuits that in the end are rubbish. Help us to see what is truly valuable in your Son and forsake all else that we may know Him and be found in Him. Let's pray. Amen.